This is a podcast, Constitution for Democracy, from the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy and the Coast Action, Constitution Making and Deliberative Democracy. There is a widespread perception of distrust in democracies worldwide, and a widening gap separates political elites and citizens and translates into growing polarization. To close this gap, Many have advocated for more citizens' participation in decision-making, and particularly for the so-called citizens' assemblies. Citizens' assemblies are expected to draw a unique picture of what the whole citizenry would think about the public issue if they had the time to access information, deliberate and decide on the matter. But as more and more citizens' assemblies are launched around the world, the debate about their possibilities and outcomes rise. I'm Shanina Welp, and together with experts on the topic, in this fourth episode of Constitutions for Democracy, we will explore the promises and pitfalls of citizens' assemblies. In the last two decades, many citizens' assemblies were launched in consolidated democracies from Canada to Australia, with many experiences in Europe. Nowadays, citizens' assemblies are tasked with learning, deliberating, and advising upon a law or a policy. British Columbia in 2004 and Ontario in 2006 were among the first in discussing proposals for electoral reform, but there were many other experiences after. This is historic. And that's why a lot of people around the world are watching us. It's historic because never, ever before in any democracy in the world has a government given to the citizens, ordinary, in quotes, citizens, unelected citizens, an important public policy question to consider. And then after considering that, make their recommendation straight to the people of the province. And that's what's happened here. What drives such initiatives? Is it just an experiment of wealthy countries and consolidated democracies? Let us ask to an expert on the topic. I'm Min Rejean, I'm professor of political science at UC Louvain in Belgium, and for the last decade I've been studying, observing uh, citizen assemblies throughout the world. In the wake of these experiments, we launched a couple of years ago the Cost Action, Concern Making and Democracy, that gathers people over 40 countries across the world. And what is actually quite distinctive, it's, it brings together people from di different disciplines. So the, the outlook that we have on these issues at stakes are quite different. The idea behind these initiatives that there is or there should be another way of doing politics as usual. Uh, if we look at the, um, the experiment in British Columbia in, in the Western province of Canada, the question was related to the electoral system. And the parliamentarians, but also government officials, did acknowledge that if they have to change the electoral rules, they're actually part of the game. And so there is a conflict of interest in doing so. And that's why actually they say, well, let's, let's have the discussion among citizens and randomly selected citizens and not us elected representatives. So we see there that what spark or what drives such initiative is indeed um, the idea that we should do things a bit differently. But also that's, that's a big question because when you say this, it means that the way you usually do it is not so good uh, to some extent. So it means that there is some tension behind this. And is this tension more present in consolidated democracy, in democracy or not? 
Not actually, of course, but maybe in consolidated democracies, it is uh, easier because there is a longer habit of using democratic processes to do something maybe new. But on the other hand, these democracies could be seen as quite conservative because they are supposed to be uh, doing well. And therefore, this is where we find the element of a, of a tension, of a crisis. And that would spark within consolidated democracies the idea of doing citizen assemblies. Uh, but on the other hand, you could also find in consolidating democracy or even in democracies that see also backlash of their democratic institutions, the use of citizen assemblies also in an instrumental way of saying, okay, this is the way we're going to reach some non-democratic goals using also citizen assemblies. So in itself, I mean, a citizen assembly is not necessarily a democratic tool. It could be, but it also depends on the purpose. Mean, you mentioned this tension on the need of doing things in a different way that implies that things are not being done well. However, at the same time, it seems that in general, citizens' assemblies' outcomes are rather modest, so it appears as much less revolutionary than expected. What do you think are the main challenges for citizens' assemblies? Should they become more powerful, or this is not the point? Well, this is partly the point, of course. Output is important. I mean, if you do something that does not produce any result or result that, I mean, impact people's lives, then maybe you should not do it to some extent. And indeed, but looking at the output is not necessarily the only way of looking at what's legitimate within a citizen assembly. I think you could also look at the end, who is actually making the decision, who is actually taking part into the decision process. Are they the usual people, the usual suspects to some extent, or are they different? And this is where uh, citizen assemblies are quite different to what we know in terms of the traditional decision-making process, which is typically elected representatives, or maybe experts, or maybe people related to the administration. And in bringing um, ordinary citizens to random selection, it makes a difference. With citizen assemblies, there is a big focus on not only the participation of people who don't usually participate, that's the input, but also on the throughput element, on how the process is run, how the deliberation can take place, how this process is conducive to deliberation. And then we see that the output dimension is indeed important, but then it should also be related to the input, but also the throughput dimensions. And what is maybe more intriguing or more interesting, but also maybe a, a bad news for citizen assemblies uh, is that there are trade-offs between probably these three different elements. You could be really good on the input, also because you're very much outside of the political realm of the political institutions, but then for the output, you cannot expect much that these political authorities that you kind of excluded from the process will actually implement it. And on the other hand, you could be really good uh, to the output. For instance, in a dictatorship, you could imagine that the output is good because there is uh, a decision that is implemented, but then the input and the throughput would be very low. So that's the answer to this question. Output matters, but we should look also with a, um, a larger framework, including input, throughput, and output entities. In 2010, the Icelandic Citizens' Assembly called for global attention. We have a direct witness, an analyst of the case, to understand what happened there. My name is Jón Olafsson. I work at the University of Iceland, where I am professor in the Cultural Studies Department. 
epistemic democracy and and deliberative democracy has been one of my main research areas for the last few years and and one of the things i've been i've been looking at uh, is the um, icelandic constitutional assembly and constitutional council something that happened here well more than 10 years ago actually now but has had an interesting uh, story to this day involving both official politics and activism in in many interesting ways let's say so that's that has been my main example and and source for discussion uh, in in constitutional matters at least indeed sean iceland is a main example in constitutional matters could you please tell us about the context in which the citizens assembly was launched there yeah we had when after the parliament had decided to elect uh, a constituent assembly we had uh, a citizens assembly uh, brought together with a random selection from the icelandic population which is by the way very small only uh, around 350,000 people we had an assembly of 1,000 people which was expected to um, create the guidelines for the then later elected constituent assembly the constituent assembly itself of course is, is a citizens assembly as well but elected rather than randomly selected and it was it was given a, a task of of uh, revising the constitution but due to uh, rather complicated political events here in Iceland which included actually the interesting move by the supreme court to invalidate the elections to the to the constituent assembly due to certain technical faults in how the elections were carried out what happened was that we had uh, a so-called constitutional council which was appointed by the parliament but contained the same members as the original elected constituent assembly which was given four months to create the constitution and i think this is really the interesting part of the of the story because this uh, council of 25 people was in fact able uh, to create uh, a draft constitution which was then submitted to the parliament uh, but it did so in a, a very transparent surroundings um, inviting the public uh, to join uh, the council in many different ways via social media which at the time was considered quite revolutionary but also via more traditional means such as sending formal requests to the council and and also watching the the council meetings the plenary meetings and so on what scholars have looked at in particular as as an innovative part of this is the full transparency of the process there was never uh, any any moment in which kind of a backdoor or secret activity or secret consultations were about what to select and what not to select out of what had been drafted this was everything was done in full fully open and those interested in the process could watch it all the way through so so this has really been sort of the interesting case in Iceland with citizens uh, assembly so to say Unfortunately, this hasn't really continued. Uh, many people who watched this were not maybe necessarily thinking first and foremost about the constitution itself, but thought that the process would enable the Icelandic government to use more of the same in creating other policies and legislative initiatives. But that unfortunately hasn't happened. But one of the things you could say activists in this field fighting for is a wider use of, of these methods. Some people consider that the process failed because 
despite producing a constitutional draft, which after many problems was approved by the parliament and ratified in referendum, it never entered into force. In your view, was it a failure? Yeah, I, in my view, uh, this was not a failure at all, uh, but you're absolutely right. If you think about it in terms of the actual outcome, uh, there hasn't been any outcome yet. Uh, the constitution has not been amended at all <laughs> during the last 11 years. But in my view, it did two things. It alerted uh, the public to the importance and the possibilities of doing uh, policy, making policy outside of the traditional institutions and how the public can actually work together with these institutions. And secondly, it made Icelanders much more aware of the importance of the constitution itself. Um, there is still in Iceland, there is a, a, a strong movement which has been successfully campaigning to you know, to begin again with the constitutional draft that was submitted in 2011. And they have argued that, in fact, there was a certain promise made to actually do this, to finish uh, the project. But in my view, this activism has, has not really a good effect. It has rather had the effect to stop the institutions from actually going ahead with sort of more public initiatives. So, so the... The constitutional saga, ongoing as it is, is a little bit stalled at the moment. But nevertheless, I think that uh, because we have, through this process, a much uh, more interesting and wider uh, discussion in Icelandic society of how grassroots uh, politics and activist initiatives and, and wide citizen involvement and engagement can actually produce something, uh, I would say that on the whole, uh, um, this is not a failure, it's just a part of a longer story, so to say. Let us now move to Ireland and to talk to a scholar who has been engaged in many citizens' assemblies from the very beginning and has published enlightening research on the issue. So hi, I'm Claude Harris. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics in University College Cork. And I'm affiliate of the Environmental Research Institute there and the Marae Institute there, Research Institute there as well. And I suppose I have background in researching the citizens' assemblies in Ireland and being on the advisory and legal group for Ireland's first citizens' assemblies, the, the We the Citizens' Citizens' Assembly, and also the Irish Convention on the Constitution, which was the one that led to the marriage equality referendum. I'm also the management group of the, the Cost Action on Constitutions and Deliberative Democracy. Hi, Cloda. To quickly set the scenario, let me exaggerate a bit. For some scholars, citizens' assemblies incarnate the most pure model of democracy, based on descriptive representation and to somehow excluding parties. For the skeptics, there are two types of concerns quite distant one from the other. On the one hand, many consider citizens' assemblies irrelevant because do not have binding powers. For others, it opens room to manipulation, exercised around different forms of intervention, as in the selection of experts, the writing of recommendations, etc. What would you answer to these concerns? 
Yeah, wow, that's some question. I suppose for me, citizens' assemblies are part of a wider deliberative democratic system and they're they're not there to kind of replace existing institutions, but to actually to complement and to add add to to the process. So but in terms of the diverse perspectives and considered justified justified recommendations that they can bring to bear on a policy or a constitutional issue, they have an important role to play in contributing to what Oliver Escobar has described as a vibrant democratic ecology. And I say can have because like other democratic institutions, they need to be open to scrutiny and to critique. So, and I suppose this requires particular care when it comes to designing and implementing assemblies, but it it requires also a commitment to deliberative values such as inclusion, equality and reason giving, and also that commitment to ongoing monitoring and evaluation at all stages in the process. Process. And when I say all stages, I mean kind of the pre-engagement stage in terms of who initiates the assembly, how is the agenda set, who who recruits, who decides who's participating, how are the participants recruited, and and so on. And likewise for the experts, how are they chosen? And then the actual engagement itself, the actual when the assembly members come together and deliberate. And then there are questions that need to be monitored and scrutinised there. But also, you know, it has to be deeply the virtues of deliberation need to be embedded in terms of how is the information framed? Is there inclusion in the small group discussions? Is there facilitated discussion? professional facilitated discussions and how are decisions made within within the assembly and then post-engagement I suppose there needs to be ongoing monitoring and evaluation of what happens to the recommendations from the assembly where do they go to what kind of response do they get so for me I suppose as part of a wider system they can contribute to decisions for my part I would argue they should not have the power to make binding recommendations but this does not make them irrelevant on the contrary I suppose they provide a space for wider in the sense that it can bring in more people, more perspectives and deeper exploration of issues and can contribute to more legitimate and implementable policies. And could you please summarize the most relevant lessons the Irish experience leave and particularly share with us your opinion on which decision-making authority citizens' assemblies should be able to exercise? Could you be in favor of binding decisions or of combining citizens' assemblies with referendums, as happened in Ireland in 2018 with abortion law. So there are many lessons, I suppose, to be learned from the Irish experience. So firstly, I suppose what we learned was that citizens' assemblies can deliberate on contentious constitutional issues, like in the Irish case, marriage equality and the provision around abortion in our constitution. They can also deliberate on wicked policies like like climate action and in ways that can contribute to... Con- and I suppose that was new because prior to that, these citizens' assemblies had mostly looked at uh, kind of issues around electoral reform and political reform. I suppose the other thing we saw from the Irish experience is that there's an acceptance of citizens' assemblies, certainly in Ireland, as being an important part of the policy landscape and the constitutional reform landscape. And we're seeing new citizens' assemblies happening this year now in Ireland, one on biodiversity and another on a directly elected uh, mayor for, for Dublin and a promise of others to come. The other thing I suppose that emerged from the Irish process was this idea, kind of almost, and I've been looking at it myself, 
itself in terms of the democratization of expertise. So this mixture of expertise that included what you would expect in terms of experts from medical, legal or academic areas, policy experts, but also then a role for the lived experience with testimonials, a lived experience of a policy or constitutional provision, as again we saw at marriage equality and the abortion issue. There have been challenges with the Irish system and so there are lessons to be learned there too, in the sense at the beginning there were too many issues on the agenda. That has changed with with more recent assemblies. But yet the process itself is still kind of an ad hoc process and it's a top-down process. So it's initiated by our parliament with a predetermined agenda. And I suppose there's always a worry that it be, could become a way of offloading or outsourcing difficult issues. The other side of that coin, I suppose, the fact that it's coming directly from the parliament, it means that um there's greater likelihood of having a commitment to a response, albeit in some cases very late, but another timely. So I suppose it comes down to how tightly a citizens' assembly is linked, or the, in the academic literature, the word I suppose is coupled to representative institutions. And I suppose there's always the worry if the link is too tight or too strong that there's a risk of domination and manipulation. And if it's too loose, then it becomes arguably ineffective. And I suppose as of many things in life, it's a it's a struggle to find the right balance. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't struggle. I do see the role for them in leading to more informed debates prior to a constitutional referendum. So, yes, there could be a solid argument for having them in advance of referend- constitutional referendums, similar to what they do in Oregon with the, with the Citizens Initiative Review. But again, I don't think the role should be confined to that, because certainly in the Irish case, a lot of the issues they have discussed have not in, in more recent times have not necessarily necessarily been constitutional issues. So I suppose what is important for any Citizens' Assembly um, process is that it is clear at the beginning of any process that there is a final destination, that there's a clear destination for the report and the recommendations, and that there is a predetermined commitment there is a determined, I suppose, commitment to a detailed response to the recommendations. So, for example, in the Irish case, we have seen recommendations being assigned to specific joint parliamentary committees, as in the case of the if climate action. But we're still waiting to see responses to some others. Clodagh, given your current work on youth participation, why do you think it's relevant to promote it? And why, if this is the case, citizens' assemblies or youth assemblies could be a good model? So I suppose, as we know, electoral cycles, being what they are, political electoral cycles, kind of their focus is on the short to medium term. And this can, you know, when it comes to certain policy issues, particularly wicked ones, this can be ill-suited. So for things like climate action, but for others like public finance, state pension provision, in our case here in Ireland, in the not too distant past, the state bailing out of private banks, these decisions in these areas will affect many generations to come, not to mention current generations. And I suppose at the way, at the moment, in most democratic societies, this is basis for children and young people to influence policy decisions are few, but the decisions that are made have a direct impact on their lives. So, and arguably, you know, from a, a legitimacy perspective, their inclusion should be imperative, you know, particularly from the perspective of deliberative democratic uh, legitimacy, which argues that political decisions are justifiable to those impacted them by them. And in some ways, it becomes even more um, important or crucial when we think and consider that some of the actions or inactions that we are taking today 
have irreversible consequences. So they can't be changed in the future. So it's not sufficient to say they can do something different when they are older or when they have the opportunity to participate because that option will not be available in some cases. And I suppose I'm thinking, I mean, again, you're looking at things here, maybe like climate action or public finances, et cetera. And I'm talking here about wicked issues, but that doesn't mean that young people's participation shouldn't be included on all issues. But I suppose I just want to focus on this in particular because my own research recently has been on the climate action element. So I suppose for me, in many ways, their meaningful inclusion is essentially an issue of intergenerational solidarity. I suppose that's something that we saw come to the fore as we tackled the COVID pandemic with the various restrictions that countries imposed. It's an issue of intergenerational justice and I suppose democratic legitimacy across the generations and assemblies, citizens' assemblies, by virtue of the fact that they emphasise inclusion and equality and what often Prius refer to as fact, future and other regarding recommendations. I mean, they really are, they have the potential to be a significant forum for addressing the deficit. Having said that, they shouldn't be the only forum for addressing this deficit, you know. And I think I'm very inspired by what has been happening in the Scottish case in recent in recent times where the, the where the children's parliament have worked closely with and contributed to and influenced their, their climate assemblies deliberations on climate action so that I think there's much we have to learn from them and expand you know and expand upon and consider as we can as we roll out or see more and more citizens assemblies being established. John in your view it is better to have pure citizens assemblies only composed by so-called ordinary citizens Or are you in favor of mixed models combining, for instance, ordinary citizens and partisan actors? What do you think are the most relevant lessons from the Icelandic experience on that matter? The, the main thing is maybe not whether you have mixed or non-mixed assemblies. And I think it's, it has a bit of a populist flair to make this uh, strong distinction between people who are politicians and people who are not. But the main thing is, in my view, that you, you cannot expect to change important pieces of basic policy, such as the ones that constitutions express, unless you are careful to create the right connections between the different ways that power works. So you cannot just uh, elect an assembly and then expect the legislator or the or the or the executive branch simply to do what this uh, assembly tells them to do there has to be a much more intricate connection between the various branches there has to be trust building there has to be an idea of common mission and things like that i think w what is really important is the way in which you can actually encourage the people to think about the constitution because after all it's much easier uh, for the public to think about particular issues that may interest them. We see this in elections. Constitutions do not rank high in the priorities people have when they decide what to vote in elections. They think more about more pressing issues. So uh, a constitutional issue is something that requires the public to be ready to, to engage in a much more abstract, maybe a little bit more complicated deliberations. And I think it should be a common goal of those who are see themselves as politicians and those who see themselves or identify more with uh, grassroots or activism or civic organizations to figure out how to use uh, 
the constitution as a platform for getting people together to think about the values of society and so on and so forth. I know this sounds a very sort of very loose and abstract thing, but on the other hand, maybe it would make sense uh, not to think too much about the constitution as the sort of the fundamental document that uh, determines uh, how power is used and so on, but also as a way for, for people to come together to think democratically about the basic values of, of the society. I think that's what citizen assemblies can do. But if they're just on their own, if they're unconnected to to power, they're also meaningless, I think. And we obviously are talking about the Icelandic project uh, a lot, but, but it has a more general more general reach. So to add a bit to this, I should, I should say that we are here at the University of Iceland. We have an ongoing research project funded by the Icelandic Research Council as a project of excellence, where we are, on the one hand, we are exploring the Icelandic constitutional experience, obviously, but also working on... Uh, democratic engagement, democratic in public involvement in, in a wider sense. And this, we have a, a website called constitution.hi.is for anyone who is interested in taking a look at that. It's going to be, it's going to be completed around the middle of next year. So, so we are planning now a, a big conference at the beginning of June 2023. Mean most contemporary citizens' assemblies were activated to provide a very concrete answer to a crisis, sponsored by a political authority and organized by an independent agency. Some people claim that citizens' assemblies should be institutionalized to be activated regularly. What is your view? It is true if we look at citizen assemblies that there, there is a boom. Uh, they are mushrooming. I mean, quite a few countries around the world have experienced not only one, but many citizen assemblies. But typically, they are one shot. They are one shot even. It does not mean that they are one day even, but over a couple of days, over a couple of weekends, you bring together typically randomly selected citizens and they deliberate and then they produce recommendations. And then it stops there. And then, of course, uh, the link with the existing political institution can be really strong or sometimes a weak as well. It depends, of course, on who is the commanding kind of uh, authority. What is the promise made to the citizen assembly? Do you promise as a political institution to make a referendum, for instance, to implement it or simply to do hearings or to listen to what is said. And therefore, this is where an idea of making it as an institution part of a larger system could make sense, saying, okay, when you have the recommendation, that's only the step one to some extent, because of course the recommendation then should be implemented. But then we go back also to the question of the legitimacy. Is this thing, the citizen assembly, legitimate because there is indeed no election? They are not elected representatives. And so this is where we need to actually analyze the legitimacy of the things. And this could actually be reinforced if you not only do one shot, but you repeat the exercise. And across the world, for instance, in Belgium, in different places, we find different types of institutions. One example is to say, okay, you could imagine ever citizen council which is permanently uh, established. It meets not every day, it meets once a month and there the people which stay, for instance in the case of East Belgium as it is now, they stay for 18 months. And these people, what can they do? These citizens, randomly selected citizens, they can actually do two things. On the one hand, they can actually put some topics on the agenda 
and command some citizen assemblies. That would deliver recommendation, and that's the second mission then of the uh, citizen council. They would monitor what the parliament, what the government does of this. That's one way of institutionalizing citizen assembly. Another way is actually bringing people, bringing elected representatives and randomly elected citizens together. That's the case of Ireland that, that is discussed in this podcast, uh, but that's also the case that is done in, in Brussels, for instance, where the regional uh, parliament has this tool. And then we see that in terms of the recommendation, because those who will finally have to follow up the recommendation are part of the deliberation, they're more likely to say, okay, we have decided this with a citizen and then we will implement it. We are arriving to the end of this fascinating conversation on citizens' assemblies. There are still many open questions, but I would like to stress some interesting remarks made by our participants, Minra Shams, Claude Harris and John Olafson. First, Citizens' assemblies show the possibility of doing politics outside traditional institutions. But, second, to have an incident, what matters is the connection with traditional institutions. Finally, young people have the right to be included when decisions will establish a path strongly affecting their future, such as on environmental issues. Join us in a brand new conversation every month on any podcatcher of your choice by searching Constitutions for Democracy. And subscribe so you can get the latest updates on our episodes and our research.